Uh, well, we're continuing our study through the epistle of 1 John, a letter written by the Apostle John in his 90s. And so, would you open up to 1 John? It's towards the back of the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, these fine fellows are walking down the aisle. Just raise your hand. They'll get you one. You can keep it. Um, we study the Bible here. We don't teach from the Bible. We teach the Bible. And um, we go through, if you're here for a long period of time, you'll, you'll go through the entire Bible. And uh, Wednesday nights, we started in Genesis. We've been marching through uh, the Old Testament. And currently, we're in the Psalms. And we're going to go all the way through and then pick up in, um, in the New Testament. We're going to go through the whole Bible. And um, we do different books of the Bible on Sunday mornings. And then uh, Sunday nights, we're doing a chronological study through the life of Christ. So it's a combination of all four Gospels uh, and looking at Jesus' life in chronological order. So you get to study all four Gospels on Sunday nights. And if you spend time in the church on, on Wednesday nights, Sunday mornings, and Sunday nights, you will be a student of the Bible. Uh, your, your family right now in the children's ministry is being taught in, in concurrence with what we're teaching. And they're growing strong in the Lord. Your family, the Word of God, will richly dwell in your home. And it's a foundation that will, will last a lifetime, be a great blessing to you. So I'd encourage you to stay plugged in, keep coming. Uh, if you want to get into small groups, we have those as well. You can be involved in the women's ministry, men's ministry. And everything we do centers around the Word of God. Uh, it's, the Bible is the only book in the world where we don't read it. It reads us. And as you've heard it said, oftentimes, a man whose Bible is falling apart is a sign that his life usually isn't. And so we love to study the Word of God. All right. First John chapter 3, uh, we did verse 1 a few weeks back, and I'm going to skip verses 2 through 9. I'll come back to those because I want to talk about certain things in relation to that. But today we're going to pick up at verses 10 through 18, and I'd ask that you would stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, and we sit for the word of the teacher. I'll read out loud if you'll just follow along silently. First John chapter 3, picking up at verse 10, the scripture reads, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. I have to tell you, this has been a very difficult passage for my life personally to go through. I have not enjoyed it. I imagine the previous uh, services can testify to the same. And I'm so happy you're here. <laughs> but let's pray and see what God has to say to us. Lord, thank you. As difficult as your word is, it's, it's like antiseptic to a wound, Lord. It, it does sting, but God, it, it brings healing. And Lord, I can't think of a more challenging passage than what you've laid out before us today. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move in the hearts of all who are present, that they would not shut out your word because it's too difficult. 
but by your spirit they would avail themselves to being transformed by your word. And so, Lord, here we are. Speak to us now. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have a seat and take a load off. This, um, this epistle <clears throat> was written by John, and John was the youngest apostle called by the Lord. He was 18 years old when he was called by the Lord. Now he's in his 90s. And he's writing this, and he's going to write Second John. He's also going to write the epistle of Third John. But he's very old at this time. They call him the apostle of love. And he's dealing with a church that has been operating for a number of, of decades. Um, you read the Acts of the Apostles. It probably would be better writ- written as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And you see the early church, the first century church, and how it just flourished. They spent a lot, a lot of time in prayer. The scripture says that they sold what they had. They laid at the apostles' feet, and they gave to those who were in need. It, was, it wasn't communism. It was communism. Uh, they were sharing with each other, and they, they had a love for each other. There was a beauty in this fellowship that was very tender and very sweet, which is indicative of revival. Oftentimes when you see revival, it affects the entire community, uh, every socioeconomic class. It, it goes beyond racial boundaries. It's powerful. You look at any uh, study of revival around the world, whether the Welsh revival, whether you go to the, uh, the, the Hebrids in Scotland, uh, you look at revival around the world, there's always a transformation of every socioeconomic class of people, including uh, ethnicity, and it's powerful. It touches the whole community. Uh, For example, in the Welsh revivals, they had to retrain the pack animals uh, that worked in the coal mines because the pack animals would only work on expletives because they would cuss at the animals. And when they came to Christ, they weren't cussing anymore, and the animals didn't know how to respond, so they had to retrain them. (laughs) They also had the largest number of bankruptcies in in Wales uh, during the revival because so many bars shut down. In addition, you've heard of the, the barbershop quartet. It came from police officers in Wales not knowing what to do because there was no crime, so they started singing in churches. That's a transformation of a society. That's a transformation of a culture. And this is that imperative that comes. And John witnessed this in the first century, and now he's with a church that is apathetic and getting lazy, and it's now being affected by these heresies of the Gnostics as they're coming in, and they're, they're attacking the basic fundamentals of the Christian faith. They're saying that you can, you can live in sin and still be a Christian. They're saying that the body is separated from the spirit. They're saying that there's no such thing as judgment. There's no such thing as hell. There's no such thing as heaven. There's no such thing as damnation. There's no, God is a God of love, and it goes on and on and on. And listen, I, 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 there's nobody in the room that struggles with the doctrine of hell more than me. I tell you what, my job would be far easier if I didn't have to preach on hell. But, but that's, my, I wasn't called to an easy job. I was called to a faithful job. And nobody speaks of hell more than Jesus himself. And he even declares that heaven was, or excuse me, hell wasn't made for, for people. It was made for Satan and his demons. But we choose to enter into hell in our rebellion. And we step over the cross of Christ to get there. And we reject so great a salvation. To say that, that God isn't a God of judgment is to, is to diminish and belittle the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. Listen, if God, didn't, if God isn't a God of justice and a God of judgment, then why did his son die? That just strikes me as ridiculous. I mean, yes, God is completely loving, but he's also completely just. And when we diminish the justice of God, what we're doing is we're diminishing his sacrifice, his son's sacrifice. And in addition, we think, ourselves, uh, we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. 
We don't really think of our sin to be so sinful. Listen, sin isn't, isn't sin because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's sinful. And, and we engage in it, and we don't tend to think it's all that bad. And we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. But I tell you what, when you stand before a holy and just God, life is pretty tough. Now, I think about the, the man in Cleveland who had the three women in his basement. And he, 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 you interview him, and he thinks it was just a, a love fest, and they were all getting along great. A little bit deranged, I'd say. In addition, he, he thought his world was great until he was arrested and brought into the spotlight. And all of a sudden, your sins are before you, and you realize what a wretch you are. Well, we're all faced with that. You may think more highly of yourself than you ought to, but the rea- re- realization is Christ came to set us free that we wouldn't operate in sin. Sin would be the exception, not the rule. The previous verses before uh, verse 10 of chapter 3 all talk about being sinless. Now, there's no one in the room who's going to be sinless. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the idea is you don't wake up every day with the intention to sin. You don't wake up every day engaging in sin or operating in sin or living in sin. And the idea is, is a concerted effort to remain where you are. You know that you're in an adulterous relationship, but you don't care anymore. You become numb to it. That is called living in sin. And the Bible says God doesn't abide in you. There has to be conviction. The Lord doesn't tolerate that. You know, you know why I know he doesn't tolerate it? The cross. Do you, do you know what happened to his son? You know how vile and heinous and wicked and miserable his death was? Do you know what he suffered going up the Via Dolorosa? Why, why was that necessary? Because the sin in our life is that awful. It's not about God pouring his wrath on the Son, though that, that is, is the issue. It's the issue of us realizing what it is we've done and realizing what he's done for us to deliver us. You see, when sin reigns in a community, lives are destroyed. When God reigns in a community, lives are strengthened and made manifest. Pack animals are retrained. Uh, Police officers sing in barbershop quartets because there's no crime. The Bible says that, that, that blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord and sin is a reproach to any people. And when the wicked rule, the people groan. When sin is made manifest, it's awful in a society. And that's why you see in Jeremiah 29 that when God reigns, uh, his people seek the peace of the city and they build homes. Uh, they, they understand economics. They understand how to create wealth. They understand that the Ten Commandments were created to protect wealth. They understand that you don't get anything for free. They understand if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. They understand all of these things. They understand holding people accountable. They understand discipline. And with all that established, a society reigns and it rules and it does great. But when you remove God from the equation, we all become victims. We all become entitled. And we sue each other. And we steal from each other. It doesn't matter what gated community you're in, there's always going to be a misery in the inner core of your city. And you can keep moving further away and hope that you have enough money to sustain it. But the reality is we are our brother's keeper. And so John is looking at a church that's, that's apathetic. He's watching a church as it's no longer changing and transforming the world and turning it right side up. And he speaks to this church as a man in his 90s. And he says to the church, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Let me tell you how to distinguish between the two, John says. He says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. You go, okay, well, wait, wait, where are you going with this, Pastor? What do you mean love is brother? Love is a verb, not a noun. 
There's action involved with it. How do we know that God loves us? Because He sent His Son to die for our sins. Action. Until we know God loves us, He sent His Son to die for our sins. Action. For God so loved the world, action, that He gave action, His Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Action. Giving. How do we know that Jesus loves us? Because He laid His life down for us. He said of himself, greater love has no man than this and to lay down his life for a friend. He gave us his life. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Action, love is a verb. God didn't just say, I love you. He proved his love by his deeds. He said, I would die and he died. He said, I would be buried. He was buried. He said, I would rise from the grave and he did. And the tomb is empty and our God is alive. And he did what he said he'd do. And he beat the devil with a big, ugly stick. And he said on the cross, it is finished. Now, how do, we, how do people know that we love them? How do people know that we love them? Not just by us verbally affirming it. I love you. Oh, I just, I love you. I just, I love you. Don't you just feel that? XXOO? On that little text while you're in the hospital. Just love you. Oh, what happened? That's awful. Love you. Mm. Just, mm. do you feel it? I know I do. You don't tell people how much you love them. You show them. I, I, I get people telling me they love me all the time while they're ripping me off. I, I, I am very, very wary of people who are effusive in their praise to me. They just gush it out. And I'm thinking, you're ripping me off. <laughs> the more you talk, the less I trust you. Where words abound, so does sin. I'm just listening. Oh, just love you. <laughs> that doesn't mean I don't like to hear it. Keep talking, you know. But it's like Shakespeare, thou protestest too much. There's something there when you're, when you're having to tell somebody and not show them. And, and the scripture is declaring that we'll know we are of him when we love our brother, and we'll know we're not of him when we don't. And then you can say, well, wait a minute, who's my brother? Who's my brother? Before I answer that question, the passage goes on to say, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And this is, this is a passage that, that John has been saying for, for quite a while. He declared it in a number of passages of Scripture when he was saying, uh, as he was quoting Jesus himself, and, and the passages that he, he, he declared were, um, well, John 15, greater love has no one than this and to lay down one's life for a friend. John fifteen twelve also says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. John 13, this is Jesus speaking again. John 13 says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And you say, well, I, 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 love. I love. I love my brother. Okay. 
He says, for this message that you heard from the beginning, which John reiterates, that you should love one another. But he, he declares, he says, not as Cain, who was the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain and Abel is the story. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. You can read it. I'll read it to you. Basically, I'll just give you the Reader's Digest version. Uh, Cain and Abel brought, each brought a sacrifice to the Lord. Cain brought uh, fruits and vegetables of his, of his crops, laid it before the Lord. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and cut it, sacrificed it, and gave it to the Lord. The Lord received Abel's offering and rejected Cain's offering. And Cain was irritated. Cain was so upset, he went and murdered Abel. Killed him. Killed him. And you think, well, what's the difference between? I mean, uh, Cain was a farmer. He brought fruit. And Abel was a shepherd, and he, and he, and he, and he brought, uh, you know, firstborn goat. It's a difference between Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. This, this cross behind me is the center. It's the center post of all of history. I was a history major. The cross is the centerpiece of all of history. Everyone prior to that point in time before Jesus was crucified, everyone prior to that looked forward to the crucifixion. By faith, they knew that Christ would be crucified from the proto-evangelicum found in the beginning of Genesis that from Eve would come the Savior of the world. And they trusted and waited, and Abraham believed God. It was accredited to him as righteousness. And they would sacrifice animals in representation of the ultimate Lamb of God who would come and take away the sins of the world, which was Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the Father. So when Abel, by faith, knew of the proto-evangelicum, just like Cain knew, because it had been communicated to them by their parents, Abel, in representation, knowing that his parents had been covered by skins of animals and not by fig leaves, knowing that they had to be covered by the blood, in representation, because blood must be shed for the remission of sins, Abel took the firstborn of his flocks in representation of the father who would take his firstborn son, and he sacrificed, killed, and that blood was shed in representation of the remission of his sins that the son would do in the future. And by faith, Abel gave that sacrifice to God and said, God, I can bring you nothing but submission and realizing that in me dwells no good thing, but it is your sacrifice and your righteousness put on my account that will save me. And I sacrifice and recognize that you're everything to me. And God says, that's a good sacrifice. Cain, on the other hand, says, you know what? I've worked really hard, and i got all this stuff to show for it, and God, I'm going to give you a little bit of something just to show you. I mean, I'm a good worker. And, and God says, listen, you're not saved by your works. You're saved by faith through grace. It's a gift of God, not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. It's by grace through faith. But Cain says, well, I've earned it. Look what I've done. I give it to you. And God says, that's unacceptable. But your brother's sacrifice, learn from him. I'm not learning from him. I don't need this. I'm a self-made man. Do you see what I've done? Look at the crops. If I offer to give you anything and you, he gets away with killing an animal, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. This is the God of the universe you're speaking to. And in this day and age, people would like that I wouldn't talk about hell, judgment. They would like that we would just avoid these things. Some people like to say, well, there is no God. That's a lot easier. 
doesn't work that way. I, mean, I have to tell you, the Psalms say that any man who says there is no God is a fool. And you know what, you know what qualifies you as a fool? Creation. All creation speaks of the glory of God. And, and if that's not enough to declare you a fool, design. Design. And if that's not enough to declare you a fool, the manifestation of Christ through the, the truth of his word. We have the more sure word of prophecy. It was prophesied that Jesus would be crucified 800 years before crucifixion had been invented. He'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That was declared hundreds of years before it happened, that he would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. That, that reduces the amount of all of humanity down to maybe 10,000, 20,000 people. That he'd be born of the line of the tribe of Judah. All this was prophesied, and every one of them was fulfilled. Every one of them. To the day he walked into Jerusalem that was prophesied thousands of years before. He walked in on the exact day that was given to Daniel in a prophecy. And you just dismiss it as though somehow you're smarter because you took a comparative religion class in a junior college. You're an idiot. I'm serious. You're a fool. It's like taking a watch and throwing it on the ground and looking at it and saying it just happened. No, it didn't. Oh, but over billions of years it did. Everyone look at you and just, you're, you're, you're ridiculous. Oh, no, 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 no. No, see, the sand was blowing, and then a volcanic eruption occurred, and then the sand melted into a glass form, and then the wind blew and beveled the glass and made it shiny and clear, and then it just happened to break in this perfect cylindrical form, and then all these metallic parts came together as the things just happened, and then they manifest themselves in the leather strap itself, even with the dots uh, for the holes being uniquely uh, uh, distanced apart. It was a bird that, that uh, pecked those holes just exactly. No! The sun rises, the sun sets, there's four seasons. We're, we're 93 million miles from the sun. If we're 5% closer, we'll burn to death. 5% further away, we'll freeze to death. We're held in a delicate balance on nothing. You can direct yourself from the night sky in any direction on the face of the earth and you're in a universe of order and you're telling me there's no God. You're a fool. Stop it. And we come to a place where it's an imperative that this God who's calling you by name has given his son in a declaration of love, laid his life down in an active verb, Love, the Father's given His Son, the Son has given you His life, and now as His redeemed, covered in the blood of the Lamb, He says to you today to do the same. Love one another as I have loved you. Not like Cain and Abel. And you know why Cain murdered Abel? Because it's never in vogue to be a Christian. I just, I got news for you. Jesus said, a servant isn't any greater than his master as they hated me. They're going to hate you. Jesus said, if the world hates you in John 15, know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 17, 14, Jesus says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Matthew 24, 9. Jesus said, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. 
It's not pleasant. The world's going to hate you. I'll tell you what. You say, well, no, Pastor, the world doesn't hate us. And why do you have to talk? Uh, Let me help you with something. You want to love in action? You want to love in action? Jesus says, and do it unto the least of these. You've done it unto me. Or he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you, workers of iniquity. But what he does say to those that he says, enter into thy rest. He says, what you've done to the least of these, you've done unto me. Let me help you with the least of these. How about the 70 million babies who have been aborted since 1973? I will show you how you can be hated in this world. Stand to protect those children before they're born. And you will, be, you will be ostracized, you will be spit upon, you will be mocked, you will be hated, you will be ridiculed. You'll be called a country bumpkin and some religious fanatic because you're defending the weak that are in the womb and the voiceless. Let me help you with another one. Peter Singer, who deals with, uh, he's, he's a professor in Princeton University, an ethics professor. He says, I have no problem with, with giving birth to a child to take the organs of that child to give to the child that you want to have live. That's ethics at Princeton. Princeton founded by Scottish Covenanters, Christians who fought against England for the sake of doing what's right. Now they put into employment some knucklehead like that. And, and we diminish the value of a human life. And, and here's, here's when a culture's dying. We love our animals more than our children. And we don't have children anymore because they're an inconvenience. And if the child is born with a defect, let's get rid of it. That's, that's tragic. And that's why in our culture, Christians are called to love the least of these. And we're to be fruitful and multiply. We have this buddy break where we, we're, we, we're not just word and tongue, it's deed and in truth. You have a chance to give a family with a special needs child a respite on a Friday or a Saturday night so they can go out to a dinner. I think about my father in the throes of Alzheimer's. Read a number of books. One was a 36-hour day. And the, and the, the idea of a 36-hour day with, with those who are caring for Alzheimer's patients, and there's a number of folks in this room who are doing that right now. And they, they commented, they said, we're, we were grateful for the people who say, we're praying for you, but the ones that really touched our lives, they would show up on a Saturday to give us a respite. I think of the royal, uh, the royal convalescent home right off of Teal Boulevard. I went there for a birthday celebration of a member of our congregation. And with the exception of the table we were sitting at, and there she was celebrating her birthday, and her grandson was with her, and always caring for her, brings her to church every Sunday, visits her daily, loves on her. My father is continually visited where he is, always a family member every single day. But what was amazing is this is a table we were sitting at, but every other table in the dining hall, there was nobody visiting. And every one of you has time to do that. There's always something we can do. John says in verse 13, he says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren, and he who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. There's no room for hate in the body of Christ. A message like this is an interesting one because it's so difficult to apprehend and apply 
that you'd rather attack the messenger than apply the message. And I, listen, there's nobody who gets that better more than me. I get it. And I, and I have no problem if you're going to go to lunch and have roast pastor and just say, well, Pastor Rock, he doesn't do any of that. And he and yeah, I, listen, I'm a failure. And it doesn't make me a hypocrite. I, a hypocrite is someone who knows the truth and directly steers people away from the truth. I know the truth, and, and it's a goal that we're all setting, and we fall short of it, but we keep, we keep persevering. Now, if you want to write me off and, 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 and justify your disobedience, that's between, I'm, I'm fine between me and the Lord. You take it up with him. But the issue today is God is challenging us, and he says in verse 16, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever hates this world, excuse me, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him and does not love, and, does, and how, how does the love of God abide in him? If you have the world's need, goods and you have surplus and you see somebody in need and you don't have, help them, God says, how does the love of God abide in you? I, I don't get it. The Lord says, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Who's my neighbor, pastor? I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't understand what you're saying about neighbor. What, what are you talking about? We covered this, and I want to read to you. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. A certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, it's written in the law. What is your reading of it? And so the, good, or the, the man said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your, love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly, and do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, Well, who's my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn to take care of him. And on the next day, when he departed... He took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. And so Jesus asked, So which of the three do you think was the neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. And that's the picture that the Lord declares to us. On a day like this, he wants us to have this imperative to love. And you can, in an affluent society like ours, living in Thousand Oaks, it's, it's hard to find somebody like that. But Oxnard's just a stone's throw away. You know, I, I cut my teeth in ministry under the teaching of a man by the name of H. Spees, and he ruined my life. He ruined my life in a good way. H, when he was 22 years of age, he moved from 
um, an affluent white suburban area to Mendenhall, Mississippi in the middle of the civil rights era to work with a man by the name of John Perkins, a black man who was raised in Pasadena, California, and moved back to Mississippi in the throes of the civil rights movement. And Mendenhall, Mississippi was in the thick of it. And John Perkins began to bring racial reconciliation by going across the tracks and meeting with the white pastors and saying, when God moves in a community, there's, there's, no, there's no color that's seen. When God moves in a community and there's revival, it goes beyond the socioeconomic strata. And together, we need to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace and pray for God to bring revival in Mendenhall. That the tracks would not be a dividing point and that the most segregated place in America would not be the church on a Sunday morning. And the two white pastors whose ears he was able to convince and to move upon through the gospel as they began to read about the widow and the orphan and, and their brother and seeing these things. Let me tell you, a, a Samaritan to a Jew was hated. So white and black in the South is a picture of the Jew and the Samaritan. And I would just say to you, who, who, who do you fear the most? Well, that's who God, God's called you to serve. That's a struggle. And as John Perkins ministered to these men on the other side of the tracks, these two white preachers began to declare to their congregation that we need to set up reading programs and we need to go across the tracks. These are our brothers and sisters and mended. He got such flack from the congregation because First John chapter 3 is not a fun text to preach. And the grief he received, both of those pastors received, led them both to commit suicide. H.P. showed up with his wife, Terry. They were 22 years old. Terry was four months pregnant with their first child. They began to work in Mendenhall, Mississippi. White as Wonder Bread. And, and working in Mendenhall, Mississippi and seeing no color. Understanding racial reconciliation and, and stepping in the midst of it being challenged every day, Terry, to supplement their $500 a month missionary budget, was a nurse and went to work in one of the hospitals, and there she met a boy named Jimmy. Jimmy's parents made soap for a living. And when Jimmy was a little boy, he got into the chemicals, the lye, started to play in the lye, and burned his esophagus, burned his lungs, burned his face. He was on a a breathing machine, respirator. His parents didn't want him. They put him in a foster home where he was beaten, crushed his skull, right side of his body was paralyzed, and he was now in a hospital, and Terry was caring for him. Terry was four months pregnant. And I remember hearing from H about these stories because H was one of the busiest guys I'd ever met. He was being used of the Lord in Fresno, California, in the early 90s when Michelle and I were living there. In the early 90s in Fresno, Fresno had the second highest murder rate, second only to Los Angeles, second highest car theft rate, second only to Newark, New Jersey. We were in a free fall as a community. When Vietnam fell, uh, the State Department thought it wise to bring all the Vietnamese, the Laotians, and the Mongs to Fresno because it was an agrarian culture, and they moved them into the city of Fresno. And so you had the Hispanics, the blacks, uh, the Mongs, the Laotians, the Vietnamese, and it just became class warfare, and it was awful. And the whole city was in a free fall, and, and, and it was white flight, and they all moved to the north into the gated communities as they watched the inner city just burn. 
And H was so moved that he left Clovis, which was Whitebreadville, and moved into the Lowell District, which was in the midst of the inner city as an inner city missionary. And he moved there with a handful of other families. He was moved by Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7, which is this picture of praying for the peace of the city and building homes and, and planting vineyards and setting up economics and, and, and working in the worst community. And if the water level rises, it rises for every community. And there in the Lowell District, um, I was touched by H. And I was a youth minister at the time. And I remember bringing my students to paint houses in the Lowell District that were owned by all the slumlords in the north. And these, these under-income uh, folks living in these slum houses had no ability to fix them up, and the landlords didn't care. They were getting the rent. And we went in there to paint them. And the paint was donated by Wilshire Paint Company, Bud Edmonds. I remember bringing my three leadership guys in to meet Bud, and, and as we were in there, uh, we said, Bud, can, I said, Bud, can you tell these guys why you do what you do? And Bud at the time was in his early 70s, and he says, well, I've only been a Christian since my mid-60s. He said, when I came to Christ, I gave him everything, including my business. He says, boys, let me tell you something. I've given away, anytime they want to paint a house in the inner city, they get the paint for free and the equipment to do it. Some of the equipment's been damaged, and we've given away more than $150,000 in paint just in the last few months alone. And two of my warehouses have been broken into, and we've had thefts in both of them because we're part of the inner city. He said, but let me tell you something. Of all the paint manufacturing companies in California, we're one of two that's had a sales versus sales increase. Uh, I can't give it away, and they can't steal it faster than the Lord replenishes it. And we watched as the inner city was changing. We started painting house after house after house. And I wanted to get to know H. And I knew he'd mow his lawn. So I'd go and help him mow his lawn and edge. And just, I knew he wasn't going to give me a fireside chat and spend time with me. But I wanted to learn from him. And it was at those moments and those times in life where I started to hear the stories about Jimmy. When, when Terry came home and said, H, we need to adopt Jimmy. She was four months pregnant with her own child. But she said, I think the Lord's saying we need to adopt Jimmy. And H said, well, I I haven't heard from the Lord on that. And that night, long before there was the internet and Bible programs, he took out a concordance and went through every passage of the scripture that talked about childless, widow, orphan, and he was convicted by the time the sun rose. And he said, Terry, you're right. Let's bring Jimmy home. And I learned a lot from H. Spees. My life was ruined. H and Terry had 12 foster kids. Three of them they adopted. Terry runs three nursing homes for 18 medically fragile kids. I mean, the kids that they fostered were in wheelchairs with respirators. Amazing family. They've been married 37 years. H used to say, you know, we left the gated community in Clovis to move to the Lowell District because our Savior left probably the nicest gated community, the pearly gates. He left the glory of heaven's throne for the humiliation of an earthly cross to be incarnate and to work in the city and to bring the shalom, the peace of that city. Not just redemption, but restoration. You see, in a community, there's common grace and then there's also saving grace. And when we establish those things in the lives of people, the world changes. I long for the day, especially in Fresno, where the young people can walk to school without worrying about getting shot and the old people can rock on their porches. That's what H used to say. I remember one time, the thing that broke H's heart, 
little boy named Aurelio lived two doors down from him. H had shared with the family. They painted their house. And Aurelio was coming back from middle school in a drive-by shooting, and the bullet shot him, hit him so hard in the forehead that it knocked him out of his shoes. They took a picture of the shoes and put it in the Fresno Bee. And H went and loved on the parents and the remaining siblings. And it was Christians who brought him food and cared for him, helped pay for the funeral costs. Listen, God didn't give you a promotion so you can go on a vacation. There's work to be done. There's lives to be touched. I'm not sure how you're supposed to find that in this community. And, and, and I, you know, I often try to justify, Lord, I've done enough, or I'm doing enough. Or I, and, and I read passages like this, and it just shakes me up. I know God wants to do greater things in my life. I know that the Lord wants to move in greater capacity and, and touch me and And I would just say to all of you, the Lord declares, by this we know love because Jesus laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now, I I got news for you. I'm not interested in you giving because of this message and and if you're giving now and it's frustrating you and you think this is a tithe message you can shut it off right now don't need your money and I don't want it keep it keep it the Lord even declares he says but I say to say to you he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully so let each one give as he purposes in his heart not grudgingly or of necessity for God loves a cheerful giver And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. You know, God gives you the privilege to return the tithe, just like Abel. It's an act of faith. And you say, well, we're not under the law. Amen, we aren't. Yeah, and tithing is the law, I agree. But don't forget, grace is greater than the law. Jesus overcame the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So grace overcomes the law. Grace is greater than the law. So if you want to play that game, I'm, I'm happy enough. That's fine with me. But you begin at the law, and that's the commandment. That's the commandment. And the Lord wants us to abide in his commandments. You just look at verses 2 through 9 of this passage, and you can see that that's what God desires. And when you give it, it's not your money, it's the Lord's. And say, God, what do you want to do with your money? But more than, than that, you can begin with that. Because I got news for you. If, if, you can, if your heart is, is yielded enough to look around in this community as we're going through the, the greatest economic downturn in the history of our lifetime, and you know of families who have lost jobs, who, are, who have sick kids, and, and here's why you, you don't want to spend too much time greeting each other, because you're going to be made aware of their needs. And that's why we got gates and, and, and walls, and we don't want to get to know our neighbors, because we're going to get to know their needs. Well, we're Christians, and that's what we do. And you step into their world, and you find out what's going on, and you're, you, you, you say, Lord, how do you want me to address this? And, and if you say to God, and this is a dangerous prayer, you say, God, open my eyes that I would use your funds for your glory and your 
life for your glory. This is your life, Lord. You've redeemed it. What do you want to do with it? God, I have no idea how to approach the foster care system in this county, but Lord, I am open. Be careful. Your heart will stretch and it will be broken and you will be let down. But you will know the joy of love and you will have the Savior's heart. You ask him, he'll move in your life. It's not a pleasant passage, but it's a needed one. We are the body of Christ. If not us, then who? Who? Every rescue mission in this world was founded by Christians. Almost every hospital in the world was founded by Christians. You go into New Delhi in the slums, in the misery of that place, what are you going to find? Christians. When Molokai was filled with lepers who went Christians. This is what we do. Because our Savior left a gated community to go into the midst of the misery and make a difference. And that's what we do. Not in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. That you would declare to us by this, we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him how does the love of God abide in him he didn't give us wealth to cause us to live in fear in a gated community he gave us wealth to live in faith that we would love not in word and tongue, but in deed and in truth. Lord, you've given us the world's goods and we see our brother in need. Our heart is not shut to them. We want you to abide in our life and we want to be used for your glory. So Lord, I know for all of us, this is going to be a frightening prayer, but one that's going to set us free. And so Lord, I ask that you would move in our congregation, that the love of God would be a verb and not a noun and that we would have this imperative of love upon our heart show us how to love Johnny and friends special needs kids and their families those family members who have Alzheimer's going to the royal convalescent home visiting shut-ins going to the hospital going down to the rescue mission going to Gabriel's house Lord there's so much to be done Show us what you'd have us do. And Lord, we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're the one who brought the message and you're the one who convicts the heart. Not condemns, but convicts. We thank you for your gentleness in Jesus' name. Amen.